Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, your host, and this is where you make your move from product manager to product master. This episode is being published on Christmas Day, and while you're likely listening another day, it seems only fitting that I wish you a very Merry Christmas. With over 150 interviews here to help you make the move to Product Master, there's a lot to learn from. And some of you have shared how specific interviews have helped you solve a problem or gain confidence in your work and even get a promotion or a new job. I love hearing those stories. With all of those interviews, I know that's a lot to review if you haven't heard them, And the last thing I want is you feeling overwhelmed. So I made a summary of sorts for you. I want you to go to theeverydayinnovator.com and download my free guide for you, the top 10 tools and insights from the first 100 plus interviews. Hundreds of product managers have already done this, and I hope you get it too. Several listeners have asked about medical device products, and I searched for someone with deep experience in this area. I realize most of us are not involved with medical devices, but any product manager can learn from the upcoming discussion. This ability to learn from product managers in different industries is one of the things I most enjoy about this podcast. We have a lot in common regardless of the industry we work in, and often we can get insights through the perspective of someone working in a different industry applying product management a little bit differently. My guest is Mike Lawless, who has over 25 years of experience in medical devices, starting as a mechanical engineer. For more than a decade, he's been helping to create medical devices for a variety of organizations through his own company, Lawless Consulting. In the discussion, you will learn the challenges of creating a high-value manufactured product, the importance of prototyping and testing to failure, and the benefits of using parallel problem-solving and development. You'll find the show notes with a summary of what Mike and I discussed at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 156. Enjoy the interview. Mike, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovator podcast. Oh, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. I've had a few people recently ask about medical device product management and was glad to make a connection with you to be able to talk about that. So why don't we start with the kinds of medical devices that you have helped develop? I've worked on a fairly wide range of medical devices, but with a heavy focus on drug delivery systems. Hmm. So delivering drugs, uh, insulin and IV pumps, also some diagnostic equipment. Uh, when I worked uh, for about 19 years with a large pharmaceutical company designing IV pumps and disposables that go with them, uh, since I've began my consulting work, I've seen a larger variety of medical device projects, but mostly related. A lot of it related to diabetes, uh, insulin pumps, and uh, blood glucose sensing, since it's such a critical area. Mm-hmm. Good expertise in medical devices for sure, and especially the delivery of, of drugs. And I know you've had some background in other products also. How's the development of medical devices, what you've been focusing on for the last several years, how's that different from other kinds of products? Yeah, there are a lot of similarities for all product development, and I've been involved with the disk drive uh, development for computers, which are also high volume. My career has been focused almost entirely on high volume products, hmm. which means that not only are you looking at the function of the device, but how to manufacture it in with tooling and automation and other factors that have to all come together. Medical devices obviously have an extra challenge of the regulatory nature and all the rules uh, from the FDA. Uh, however, a lot of those guidelines really should be looked at for other products. Uh, 
disposables introduce a whole nother level of complexity and risk. And developing products is largely around risk. In medical devices, there's a lot of innovation. Uh, and that's a good thing, but it's also part of the problem. Mm-hmm. More innovation, the more likely uh, you're going to have a, a technical risk and a glitch in manufacturing. With disposables, I'm developing products that will be manufactured in the millions or tens of millions per year. And the tooling element is, is complicated and the automation is complicated. But from an overall business standpoint, if you make a small error, you don't get a second chance. Yeah, yeah, glitches tend to stand out. Can you give us an example of, of a disposable that would be part of a drug delivery system you've created? Yes, a good example would be for an IV, uh, an IV pump set. So the disposable part is uh, the tubing and the little cartridge that connects with the pump. And those are manufactured in typically tens of millions of disposables per year. Internally to the uh, disposable, you're manipulating the valves and the pumping and the sensing through an elastomer. Uh, in this case, it was typically silicone rubber. Hmm. And you're not touching the fluid directly because it's sterile, right. and then you blow it away. Uh, obviously, of the safety issues, if it's a drug, if it's a very strong drug, if there's a leak or there's an over-delivery, you have a, a safety issue that has to be managed with redundancy. When you're manufacturing these things in tens of millions per year, it means for each part, you have multiple cavities, maybe more than one tool, and all the combination of plastic parts and rubber parts and the process to assemble them have to all work. And there's no ability to adjust it afterwards because it's a disposable. It's all done in automation. So even a small mistake that would cause um, a cartridge to leak becomes a very, very serious issue. Uh, and it's hard to correct. You, you almost don't get a second chance. You can go through a very expensive process. And what happens, I'm a mechanical engineer. So when I design a part and you're going to manufacture it, the costs go up almost orders of magnitude as you increase the volume and the cost of the program goes up. So if you detect a problem at launch or after launch, it costs 10 times or a hundred times as much to resolve the issue. 10 to a hundred times as much, uh, which is interesting because when it comes to large scale software systems, and so we have people listening right now that are making physical products, services, software systems, we tend to think of software as being really easy to change, which I think is a generally misnomer. The research that's been done on large-scale systems is most of the requirement errors we find are after release, and the comparative cost to correct those errors is, is also 100 times of what it would have been if we would have fixed them when we were working on the requirements. So the, these disposables, you're, you're in the order of large volumes, tens of millions. I would assume that the actual device, like the IV pump that you might create for this, maybe hundreds of of thousands. Exactly right. So the volumes are lower. It's interesting you mentioned software because I get involved in the algorithms to to, uh, operate the pump or detect a a condition or an alarm. Mm -hmm. And if the mechanical system or the electrical system has some deficiencies, it's often dumped on the software people to compensate for less than stellar designs. Uh, And that's that's really a a Band-Aid. Sometimes it's okay, but it's often not not a, a good answer. It's better to address it ahead of time. The problem, the core problem here is that um, you need to find the problems before they find you. That's uh, one of my quotes. And what it means is that um, you want to force those failures and understand the deficiencies before you make 100 million or 10 million units a year, or it's very expensive. So it's a proactive process. So try to push things to failure, test them before you're at, uh, at production. 
I'm curious about the, the regulatory nature of this with the medical devices. If you find a problem late in stage, like you're maybe you're doing your beta testing, your field testing, and you're getting ready for launch, and you find a problem that actually creates a design change and you have to go back and, and retool something for manufacturing, how does that impact what's required for a medical device in terms of regulations? Is, is that a major issue or, or what's going on with that? I mean, it depends. So the regulatory process and the FDA process for developing products has a number of steps, including submission of uh, of the device for approval. Mm-hmm. And depending on what point you find that problem, you may have to re- redo the submission and it could cause months of delay or maybe even years in, in bad cases. Uh, so you're adding a layer of not only solving the problem, but putting together the the data in an organized fashion to meet their requirements so that that change of the design is fully verified and validated uh, to their requirements. So it's uh, from a business standpoint, it could delay launch tremendously. And that's another major difference between a medical device and a consumer device is that the development cycles are already much longer. It's typically a couple of years or longer. And then if you have a delay on top of that, because there's a, a late failure that's discovered, um, you might lose another year. So it's, it's not uncommon for, product development cycles to take three, four, five years where a new cell phone might happen in a third or quarter of that time. Sure. Every six months to a year, we might see someone with a addition to a cell phone. But uh, in the regulatory environment, we have many more things to take care of. And the stakes are higher too, right? It sounds like uh, no, no one wants a, a cell phone that is exploding in their pocket, certainly. But when you're producing so many devices and so many disposables, you have to make sure they work before you get into that. That's right. I'm curious about challenges that you've ran into with clients in developing these medical devices, right? Because you're, you're a third-party consultant. You help companies get new medical devices brought to market, created, brought to market. What are the challenges that you've ran into in the past uh, in this situation? Biggest challenge that I run into um, as a consultant working with clients, but also when I worked at the company, is that the culture at the places I've worked with – it, it isn't aligned well with what's needed for product development. And what I, what I mean is that it's a cultural issue maybe for our country or our industry that you tend to have a business focus, and the business focuses on something that's tangible that you can put on the project plan or the Gantt chart. When will a prototype be delivered? When will you have the, you know this done? And it affects the way the engineers approach their development because they look at something and, and are trying to answer the question, does it work or not? They're not asking the question of, how does it work? Why does it work? And so when a problem comes up, they're often caught off guard because it's important that the developers understand how the, how the product behaves so they can prepare to understand failures. Um, and I, I call it actually a knowledge-driven process. It's a knowledge-driven process to really bring a market uh, product to market. And the knowledge is not something that's tangible, and yet it's the most important part of the development. So when I worked with, um, you know, we can go into the example with the Archer project, which was the biggest project where I engaged with the client. Hmm. And in that project, again, what we saw was a very complex device where the engineers were focused on trying to make it work. I have a couple of questions that have come up but since we're talking about Archer. Um, tell us, what is this device? The Archer device is a is a is an applicator for a blood glucose sensor, a wearable sensor. It's one of the most popular devices in the industry. It's very helpful for diabetics. It has Bluetooth and it can connect. It can connect and, and spread the information through the phone. 
so that uh, if you have a child in school that has diabetes, um, their parents will know if their levels dropped too low or too high. Hmm. Uh, so it's a really valuable tool to understand your blood glucose levels. So it does constant monitoring uh, of your glucose all the time? Yes. And so instead of pricking your finger and doing a blood test each time, you're tracking uh, the level. So it really makes it much easier for a diabetic to uh, stay in a healthy range. So these have been um, really valuable. I worked with this company in 2008 when they were a startup company, and it was a new concept, and it really got traction, and their volumes got larger and larger. So this company I worked with in 2014, and they had uh, a lot of success, and their success had caused the the volume of the product to increase to the millions per year. They were growing at about 50% per year in their business, and their stock was going up, but it's all a very good thing. But really, they were a startup company that had a lot of success and then wanted to develop a new product that was disposable. And their ambition was to launch it at 5 million units per year. Hmm. And that's a pretty tall order. Uh, their desire was to make a very easy to use applicator. So the devices, the sensors put on with an applicator that has to puncture the skin in a very, very, very small amount and insert a very small sensor, which was like a very carefully developed wire and that's that's how they do the measurement of the blood glucose and the uh, earlier model was something that was um, difficult to use and scary because you'd have to prick yourself and it's like a plunger or a syringe and um, even though the sensor worked well it was not something that the customer found easy to use so they uh, they set a high bar they said let's make this really easy let's have a single button just push and go and the thing's all done and you don't have to uh, focus on it very much. Mm-hmm. And that was good. So that's that's what the uh, customer wanted. Uh, that makes everyone happy. But the mechanical complexity of it went up by an order of magnitude. And so they got into a device, they're going to make 5 million a year. It has to be spring loaded. And it fires in milliseconds, you know, less than a 10th of a second. Um, and it has to do all these things. There's a lot of dynamics. And if it doesn't do it right and it fails, it's a big deal. You don't want to have a half launched sensor hanging off your body and and all the scary things that go with it. Hmm. um, That's when we got involved was a product that was already probably a year late and uh, an R and D team that was pretty overwhelmed by the challenge. Also strategically, as, as I've described it, a lot of things can be summed up in terms of risk management. If you're going to develop a product, it's really about managing the risk of developing the product. But a lot of companies get ambitious early on. They have a, a big appetite. Uh, so they want to shoot for shoot for the moon, aim for the home run, and they don't have a plan B. So this is another example. I've seen this a lot of times where they really didn't have a backup plan, and their primary path was very ambitious. Hmm. So you have a choice. You can either scale back your ambition or scale up your technical rigor. And, you know, that's kind of where I come in is, is that they really needed to follow through at that point. So we brought a very powerful team and brought a lot of technical rigor, a lot of math-driven process, a lot of analysis and modeling and rigorous testing, and we broke down the problem and understood it. It was a really great project. I really enjoyed it. Uh, If they could go back in time and do it differently, they would have taken – I would have recommended a more pragmatic approach to that development. Yeah, from the beginning. What do you think the factors were going on there that they were a late – a year late in their plans with R&D? This sounds like a lot of this was really technical challenges – that created the hurdles to overcome. Give us some insights into that. Well, with innovation, 
that you have uh, often you have inventions, things that have never been done before. Mm-hmm. And sort of by definition, if they haven't been done before, you're lacking the experience to know how to uh, make them work. Exactly. And that's a big point. And I think I want everyone listening probably gets this really well, but we need better ways of communicating that to our managers at times that we're doing something new. And just like, you know, when we were toddlers and learning to walk, we failed a lot because it was something new. And this is the nature of innovation. And you bring uh, smart people together to help solve problems, but there's problems that we don't know how to solve yet that we have to work through. Yeah, exactly. Well, most of my career, my my title included R and D, and people forget about the and part. There's supposed to be research and development. Mm-hmm. They all sort of get muddled together when they're often, you know, seeing who can be the most ambitious, uh, you know, manager to launch a great product. Um, and so there's there's consequences to that. Now, there's a lot of ways to manage that risk more effectively. I advocate parallel paths at least in the high risk areas. But yeah, in innovation and invention, introduce a higher risk profile. And even at it, it, lower levels, embedded levels, you might use a new motor or a new spring that's never been done before. And the manufacturer of that part may be working outside of their normal experience. Mm-hmm. So in every case that you are involved in invention or innovation, the goal would be to, or the ideal goal would be to mitigate that risk. And the way to mitigate that risk, if it's new, is to be very aggressive on the testing and very aggressive on analysis. So I'm, I'm a big advocate of using first principles and using the math. And there's great tools out there that are underutilized. What I've found is that the pe- the project managers, and this is, you brought up this point with something new versus something that's not new. If you're going to build a spec house and it's the same as 30 other houses, you can put together a Gantt chart and say, here's all the steps to build the house. Right. It's tough enough. But if you say, I'm going to invent a new pump that no one's ever done, that's half the power and half the size and has three three new patents, how do you schedule that? And the project manager, you sign, okay, I signed a project manager, and he put together a project schedule and Gantt chart, so just go follow it, right? But you have to learn things that you've never done before, so how do you do that? And that's kind of the wrong tool for the problem, right? It's plan-driven project management tool works good for the example you gave, right? We're, we're building a house. And even if it's a house with design we've never built, we're still building it and using tools we've done before. Here's the irony, the, the way I see it. The irony is that the Gantt chart is still important. You still have to have a project plan, but that doesn't drive the project. Right. The knowledge drives the project. Yeah. And so it's kind of a, turns everything on its head because uh, some, you know, some projects may involve um, 100% predictable things like building a house. Other things may have a small amount of unknowns. It, but invention projects, innovation projects may involve a lot of unknowns. Mm-hmm. And so we're the, you can hire a gray beard like me, you know, and the idea with the experience, we're going to come in and say, let's break down those unknowns, identify all the unknowns that you've never done before, and then attack them aggressively ahead of time. Right. And ways to do that. You know, part of our discussion here is getting into that difference between the typical plan driven that usually looks like a waterfall kind of project management approach yep. versus the more agile, flexible, usually time constrained. And we change scope to the, the time we have in an R&D project. We got to get to an end that's workable, right? So we have two factors that are between not real clear understanding how we're going to achieve all the scope and what time that's going to take for us. And by the way, for listeners, when, when Mike says uh, the gray beard, Usually is this uh, connotation of the older, wiser, experienced person. And you are sporting quite the sharp gray beard. Also, you can't see, Mike, but you have quite the hipster beard going for you. What The gray hairs are earned, I can tell you that. 
partly from the kids, but partly from these projects that I've worked on uh, and the battle scars. And there's some value there. You know, you can learn from other people's mistakes, but when you make them yourself, you remember them a little bit more sure. sharp. So that's that's another value of, of, you know, having a an outside person look at a project and maybe bring a little bit of reality to it. And for addressing the risk, I think that this is a good area for us to dwell on for a moment. The, the risk with these kind of projects and the risks come in that we are working with a problem we haven't solved before. So there's new technologies that we're adapting. There's our own experience, our own learning, our, our knowledge. There's also the, we know the risk of the environment that if we're indeed tooling up to manufacture and deploy millions of these things a, a year, the stakes are higher, and we know we, we can't fail in that environment, or that we the consequences of failing in that environment are, are much larger. And you talked about a few specific things. We have to be more aggressive on analysis and testing and use parallel paths in our work. Can you give an example of parallel paths? Yes, it is risk mitigation. So you can identify your risk areas. Your goal here is to find the weakest link or the Achilles heel or the uh, whatever your weaknesses of the design, if you understand them in advance you can have a logic or a strategy to approach the engineering work. And there's a number of ways you can mitigate that risk. One is to have a parallel path. And you can take the two or three areas where you're being very ambitious and maybe have a a backup plan that is more pragmatic. And that's a parallel path. I guess a good example might be a battery technology. You know, let's say you're at the cutting edge of battery technology and it's going to increase your battery life by 30%, but it's unproven. Uh, you know, do you have a backup plan and can you do that testing? Maybe the people that developed the cell phones that caught on fire, maybe they could have had a plan B and then brought that to failure. I don't know the specifics of, of that failure, but we run mm-hmm. into this a lot. A motor would be another good example. So a motor or a sensor where you're pushing the envelope to make it smaller or maybe very low cost, you might have a less risky alternative that is not as inexpensive, maybe costs a little bit more, but at least you can fall back to that rather than stop the whole program. And so I think you can, I usually recommend, I have a sort of a rule, I call it the rule of three, I didn't invent that, but it's often good to have three paths to challenge your thinking until you've proven that you have a path that is viable. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, that that's a good way to manage risk. It doesn't have to be three. I found it Three is a good number when you have a high risk situation. Okay. Uh, and then you integrate those. Ideally, you've worked out the risk before you integrated it into a product. If you haven't, it means you have a product development where you're trying to solve and invent in the process of a project. And you, you mentioned the agile versus the Gantt chart approach. And what I run into is that both of those tools are really needed, and there's some combination of the two. That, that can fit each project depending on the level of risk because right. those agile sprints are really to go aggressively after these areas of risk. And if you do that effectively, the whole program can benefit, but it probably needs to be within the larger scope of a, of a clear plan. And that needs to fit the business plan because there's expectations mm-hmm. from the stakeholders or the investors in, in the timing for you to deliver a new product. Okay. I'm curious on this parallel path, if you've seen separate teams created to pursue different options. So you talk about the, the rule of three. And so knowing little about medical devices, you know, uh, this may not make any sense, but l- let's say we have some problem that we need a li- linear actuator to solve for us. We, we come up with three different ways that we might be able to address that. H- have you seen actual different teams used to pursue that? Like maybe you have three sprints going concurrently with different teams to try out each approach? I have seen that approach, and and I've seen uh, I've seen it work very well, and I've seen other cases where it doesn't work okay. as well. My approach and philosophy is 
is to bring transparency to the whole process. Some people try to make it too competitive and then right. they're not really focused on the outcome. With transparency, bringing all the results and the findings and the thought process to the table to the larger team, allow the, allowing them to examine it in peer review fashion is very effective. Okay. I, I don't like, I tend to not prefer the competitive approach where it, it's driven by ambition rather than really sort of the, the actual objective you know, findings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And an element, and there is, and this is where product managers have seen this many times, we're, we're prone to it, is we can get caught up in the solution and enamored with the elegant solution and lose track of, of who we're actually solving the problem for. And I think a competitive spirit has advantages at times and can also complicate that problem and create distance from who we're trying to solve the problem for. Well, it brings up a good point because this is um, really highlighted in the early development of concepts and concept development. And I work with a lot of product development houses where they're working in a very early conceptual development. And there's a divergent time period where you're brainstorming with sort of no limits. And then you're down selecting right. through identification of these key areas. And that's where, again, I kind of get down to about three things. What happens when people kind of latch onto one is they get attached to one solution and mm-hmm. it becomes an emotional thing. When there's two, it might be either this one or that one. But with three, it really forces your thinking to consider the different elements. Because the parallel paths, I think, that matter are really at the subsystem, not so much that you have three separate projects, but at the subsystem level, you might have three different solutions for the highest risk element to the product to make sure that one of those is going to plug in and you'll be able to deliver the product. Yeah, because when we start combining these things, you know, as an integrated system, things happen that are unexpected. And we might have had a hundred perfect trials of something working properly. And then because of changes with, with how things are integrated, it's failing a third of the time now. Sure. And, and we have to work through that. I think one thing to kind of add on that is there's sort of four different levels we're working at all the time. You know, one is the component level and the, the next level up is the interface where two parts meet for a function mm-hmm. and then you have subsystems and a complicated system like a pump might have five or six different subsystems. And then you have the whole system. Mm-hmm. And if you know, if you break it all the way down and you get down to the component, make sure the component is designed so it's capable of its requirements. You know, it's robust enough. And then you go to the, the interface, you understand the interface. What is the function? And then you get to the subsystem. And if you understand all those, by the time you get to the system level, like you're talking about, You've avoided 90% of the problems. You're able to focus on the complex interactions between robust subsystems. And that's very efficient. When people try to solve it at the system level, when they don't understand subsystems, you can be in an endless trial and error loop that goes for months, if not years, and not really converge. That's one thing people don't realize often is that iterations are important, but it's, it's very important you converge quickly with each iteration. And it's possible, in fact, I've seen it happen, where the iterations don't really converge. So um, because they're not really understanding the problem. So they're going through a trial and error loop that doesn't always get closer to the answer. I like that you highlighted also on this rule of three that that creates some of the emotional distance from our solutions and us not being as much in the position of defending a solution as trying to find the right solution. And in a high performing team, it's that kind of conflict that is really productive and helpful where we're discussing different ways to achieve what the customer needs as opposed to defending our solution preference. Exactly. And it's very important. And this is probably the biggest single issue uh, with product development and medical devices and outside of that is to get out of the opinion driven process and to not have a meetings driven by opinion. And so we use is we use math modeling and simulations and we continue to mature those with testing. We ground those until they become predictive and we have confidence in those models. And now we're using the models. We're giving quantitative 
reasons for making a mm-hmm. decision, driving the decision point for that. And slowly, the opinion-driven stuff will drift away if you start going that path. And as we've talked, you've put a big emphasis on driving things to failure. It looks like in those simulations and testing, you're trying to figure out how to break these devices before you're getting to the point of actually production. Absolutely. I just had this discussion this morning with a client. You know, the first thing is to make sure that the product will work over its specifications. So that's the limits. So you bring it to its limits. Well, if you have a good predictive model, you can take it to its failure. That's the margin. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a, another quote that says margin drives reliability. But really understanding the design margin on, on all the functions of the product is where that's really the solution. And so you can take a simulation model and just go further, go past the requirement until it fails. And then your, dis, your difference between the failure and your limit is your design margin. And then we use a Pareto analysis, so we constantly re-rank based on risk. But now it's it's a quantitative measurement of risk instead of a qualitative measurement of risk. So even pre-production, you have very clear insights into where devices will fail. Yeah. In fact, I I really don't want to discover any failures I haven't already found. So Mm -hmm. if you're aggressive after it, it's it's really entirely possible to find all the failure modes proactively. And that'll also make all your hazard analysis and the FMEA work and the other things that are involved in medical devices more real because you actually broke it and you can do that in a crude way and you can advance and and refine the process. Let's say you have to hold so much pressure in a, in a IV pump, you know, so you have to hold 10 PSI. Well, increase the pressure to 10 PSI, 12, 15 till it blows up. You have to make sure you have a safety uh, wall around it so you don't injure somebody. And then you have your, your margin and Mm -hmm. you start going through that process. It's, it's fun as well. So, you know, I like to break things. (laughs) <laughs> and if you break things and measure things, then you learn a lot. And now you're not guessing. And when you come back to the rest of the team, you say, here's what I did. I took, I blew it up. And here's what it looked like when I blew it up. And here's where it failed first. It's fun. You may be a gray beard, but still a boy at heart that enjoys blowing things up. And uh, I, I have to share that too. So always fun to blow something up. Okay. Lots of good tips in here, not just for medical device manufacturing, but anyone working with physical products and thinking in terms of how do we manage the risk of the project and how do we prepare for failure and think about our product in a failure situation, refine that design before manufacturing, tooling up and and doing expensive manufacturing. And along the way, you shared some really helpful quotes. And I always like asking guests as we wrap up for a quote. So I don't know if you want to reiterate one of those or if you have another quote for us, but we'd love to hear what you have and why you chose that one. Yeah, I do. I have lots of quotes, but the one that I really stick with is Divide problems, integrate solutions. And that's really the core is to break it all the way down and and try to understand each piece of it. And it's a knowledge-driven process to divide problems and then integrate solutions. So take the problem, break it all the way down, solve it, understand it, and then rebuild unknowns. So it's the same as taking unknowns, identifying them, turning them into knowns, and then reintegrating them into a solution. And it's a lot of fun, and it's very helpful. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a lot better than the reverse. The reverse is integrating problems and dividing solutions, and that doesn't work so well. And it's a good reminder of how do we tackle you know, innovations that we don't know what to do with yet, right? We're, we're moving into an area that's unknown. If we can break it into smaller pieces, it's often easier for us to get our hands around making progress. I like that. Divide problems, integrate solutions. And Mike, certainly for listeners that are in medical devices or would like some help with manufacturing, you have good experience in this area. How can people find out more about the work you do? Well, my LinkedIn site is a good place to start with uh, Mike Lawless or Lawless Consulting. My website, lawlessconsulting.com, also is a great way to get connected uh, with me. Uh, I work outside the medical device field as well, but that's really our wheelhouse. 
So I, even if you have a project that is not a medical device, but it's a high volume product, we can help. Mike, a pleasure meeting you. Nice to be able to talk. I know you took time out right before you have a flight to get on for this interview. I'm glad we could fit it in. Good insights about manufacturing medical devices and how we can, on any kind of project like that, deal with risk and work through using failures in a positive way to learn how to make a better device. Thanks a lot. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Find the summary of the discussion with Mike at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 156. Also, get my free guide, The Top 10 Tools and Insights from the First 100 Plus Interviews at TheEverydayInnovator.com. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at TheEverydayInnovator.com.